Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Graham Dallas. Graham is an incredible business development manager at the ABL Group, uh, which I'm quite excited about, actually. Graham, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hi, good afternoon. Yes, uh, Graham Dallas. I'm Group Business Development Manager for ABL Group. ABL Group is a... Amalgamation of a few previous groups. We're a, we're an organisation of consulting engineers, and we work across the oil and gas renewables and maritime sectors. So, what else does the ABL group do then? Oh, it's, it's almost easier sometimes to say what we don't do. From an oil and gas perspective, we're probably most known for our marine support uh, services. So, marine warranty, marine assurance is our main line of business. Certainly in the Aberdeen and the Northeast area, we also have dedicated consultancy companies who work in renewables and have been for 10 or 15 years. We have a company that designs ships. We do a lot of insurance work related to the marine industry. A huge amount of of services we provide, all sort of energy and oceans related is kind of how we we pitch it. But we do onshore renewables as well. Okay. Sounds amazing, actually. So how did you get started in the energy sector then? By luck, shall we say. By luck. It, it quite a semi-interesting story, actually. I uh, I left school at 16. I was a, an apprentice in a factory, and I worked in precision engineering. I'm not from Aberdeen area. I'm from a little further south. I knew nothing about the oil and gas industry other than there was one or two friends had fathers who disappeared for two weeks at a time. Knew nothing, very little else about it. Where I live, around about that time... Employment was, you know, it wasn't that easy to come by, and there was always this over the hill Aberdeen, the city of gold. Uh, that it all happened because it was oil and gas. I, I applied for a job with uh, Drillquip, and didn't hear anything. Fine, so I was continuing my life, and I got an interesting phone call one night saying, uh, "Are you still interested in working? Applying for a job at Drillquip? Sure, absolutely. Let's talk." And this was landline days, way before mobiles. And um, long story short, I had a telephone interview and was hired. As a, tra- I started off as a trainee draftsman uh, with Drillquip 20 odd years ago. Funnily enough, I asked the hiring manager like 10 years later, I said, You hired me in the strength of a phone call. And he says, We needed people. <laughs> if you were no good, we got rid of you. <laughs> well, that's, that's brutal, but honest. So I started off as a trainee draftsman because I had no oil and gas experience, but I'd been working in precision engineering for a number of years. So I quickly transitioned through the ranks and uh, I ended up. I was designing subsea equipment, Christmas trees, wellheads, all that kind of associated stuff. And then intriguingly after that, I always tell the story, I was bored sitting behind a screen for eight hours a day designing equipment. So um, a vacancy came up for a sales engineer. I thought, I quite fancy that. And I really like talking to clients and understanding what the problems were. So I made the dive into to sales and business development, where I'm still enjoying it 20 years later. Okay. That sounds amazing. So do you... You like the more of the sales more than, than the technical? I like both. I used to always say I can talk sales and I can talk technical, so I can uh, I can converse with clients to a, a reasonable enough depth, a variety of subjects, enough to understand the client's wants and needs so we can translate that back to the engineers and then I get some of the engineers involved and it gets into, into uh, the real technical talk. 
I used to tr- I used to um, suggest I was like a translator. I can speak sales and I can speak sales and, and engineering and commercial and whatever. So that's kind of where I saw my strength lay or lies. Okay, so you were a drafts person. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it was design engineering I did before. Uh, before I came into oil and gas, I designed a raft of odd and interesting things for various companies. The oil and gas was all new, um, but but it, it was easily picked up. It was my, my biggest biggest challenge was trying to remember how imperial measurements worked because I worked for an American company. Everything was imperial, and oil and gas is still largely imperial. I can work in both. That's fine. So yeah, when I, when I moved. From the sort of technical design, I obviously still had, I was uh, maybe not a specialist, but I had a lot of knowledge of specific pieces of equipment, how they worked. So when I moved to sales in the same company, I went from a, it was a sales operational role. So I was sitting with the clients in in uh, active workshops and rig calls. So I, the fact I had a, an intimate knowledge of how the equipment was designed, how it worked and how it operated was was a big help. Okay. So did you have any role models during your career? I've had lots. I've had lots. I, I, bit cheesy. But original role models. My father. My father was an engineer before me, and I kind of started following in his footsteps. Doing his, he ended up lecturing at a college, and that was kind of my plan at one time. Moving into oil and gas, obviously looked up to a lot of, uh, a lot of senior people who you know had, had decades of decades of experience and wisdom. One person that really sticks out was a, a former boss of mine. Once I moved across to the sales side of things, a gentleman by the name of Scott Alley. And he was a real good mentor to me in my, my early days. I was still, have I made the right decision moving from engineering to sales? Mm. Struggling a little bit with the engineering is all precision and you do things this way and this is methodology where sales is a bit more of an art form. And, you know, I was really struggling whether I made the right decision. He had some great things to say and really mentored me, put me on the right course, demonstrated how things should be done, took me along to meet clients, whatever. And that really made a difference to my career and me personally from a from a confidence point of view and a, how to conduct myself in front of clients and things like that. Okay. So what is the most challenging thing about your current role? Most challenging? Um, unpredictability. Because every day is different and we never know quite know what's going to happen. I said we work across several industries. The oil and gas, I mean, my, my traditional background is oil and gas, certainly for 25 plus years. We all know the struggles of oil and gas, the boom and bust mentality, the added issues we've got at the moment with the concern of the energy security, the regulatory issues, some of the tax issues we've got these days. And it's trying to predict a, a, a flow of business that we think is going to come along. You know, from a maintaining business point of view, from a resourcing point of view, we need to try and best understand what's coming next. Couple that to we're looking at a lot of offshore renewables, offshore wind, certainly in Scotland and worldwide. Again, that's, that's a relatively new industry compared to oil and gas. It has its challenges; they're a little bit different. Again, it's just trying to predict what's coming next, so we can we can best cover it to provide services to our clients and maintain a level of business that sustains us and hopefully grows. Okay, I mean, I would think it would would be quite hard to you know navigate through sales, trying to to follow up on leads and things like that. Is it quite hard to to find leads actually in the in the energy sector just now? It's it can be hard to find leads. Um perhaps a unique the majority of our services, our clients typically are on oil and gas side, it's operators. And on the offshore wind side, it tends to be 
developers, which is the wind equivalent of an operator, I guess. So we pretty much know the projects because they're, they're, they're advertised and we can track these things. So all it's a case of doing is tracking down the, the right people to talk to, which in itself is a challenge. When lockdown came along, the entire business outlook changed. You didn't drop into the customer for a cup of coffee and a, a chat anymore because the chances are he's not in the office or if he is in the office, he's there for two or three days and he's days jam-packed. He hasn't got time to speak to people. So that has changed. So meeting people, we still rely on exhibitions and conferences and things like that, technical exchanges, networking. I'm, I'm a big, big believer and fan of, of networking. I'm involved in a lot of outside of work networking. I'm a member of Society of Petroleum Engineers. I was the chair of the Aberdeen section up until up until this summer. So I'm heavily involved in that. I got a huge network through there. I can use that for business purposes as well because I get to meet lots of people in lots of different companies. But yeah, it's... It can be a challenge trying to to meet someone that, that you could hopefully do some business with. It's always a challenge. It would be more challenging now, especially because people are still on uh, the working hybrid, I would have thought. Yes, it is. And we've got to we meeting people from, from cold is still, still, still difficult. As I say, we, we try to use exhibitions, conferences, and try and at least get contacts and names. Then you can follow up at a, a different pace. And we we maximize the use of digital video calls and things like that. Our company, we actually, conversely to a lot of companies, we found we were much more efficient when we went into lockdown. The type of business we have doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily applicable to everyone. And remote working really worked for us and it continues to work for us because the type of services we provide, again, being whether it's oil and gas or renewables or marine related, it tends to be where the hubs are. So Aberdeen's clearly an oil and gas hub and hopefully a wind hub in the future. There's lots of ports and facilities up and down the, the East Coast which support oil and gas and wind. So that's where our people are located. So rather than sitting in an office in Aberdeen or Newcastle or wherever, we have got folks that can mobilise relatively quickly to the main hubs. And so the remote working bit, we did quite a lot of remote working anyway. And since since lockdown and the subsequent return, our policy has been pretty flexible depending on what your job is, depending on what you do and where you work. And it, it works quite well for us. Okay. That sounds really good. So what do you enjoy the most about your current role? Um, I really enjoy the the variety. I, I'm business development, but I work across our group and I work across all the different global locations. So I'm actually assisting some of my colleagues all around the world on how to you know, assist them and help them do their business development. We don't have a traditional sales structure. We've got very few dedicated BD people. Uh, most of them are engineers and consultants who they have their own contacts and they, they can generate a, a degree of their own work. But as we grow and we become a bigger company, we need to do it a little bit more structured. And I'm helping these people around the world. So this this week alone, yesterday morning, was a call with the, with the Asia Pacific team, 7am, you know, because that's what's suitable for them. And today's Friday and I'll hopefully get away at a reasonable time. But the chances are some folks in uh, in New York or Houston might want to have a chat later on, so that's the way it works out. But it's it, that's the fun of it. Involved in so many different aspects of different things, rather than traditionally, a lot of my career was northeast based because that's where I am from and that's where I know. And so it's it's interesting to get involved in different places and you learn how business works in different areas. There's a significantly different way of doing business in, say, South Korea or Japan than there is in the North Sea Basin or Gulf of Mexico. Is running the projects in that location, in different locations, more challenging than it would be in Europe? 
UK? Um, yes and no, depending, again, the, the sort of services we provide. If you look at um, a major oil field development, for instance, um, the chances are the FPSO or the, the, the rig or whatever is being made in either the Middle East or the Far East. So we've got offices uh, all around the Far East. So if we want to go and check on the build progress of an FPSO, we don't have to send someone from the UK to go and do it. We can send somebody from our local office who work on the same principles. And, you know, we're, we're obviously internally connected. Quite often an FPSO, for instance, will come around and it might go to Norway or, or the Netherlands for some final fit-outs. Again, we've got offices in Norway and Netherlands. We don't have to be flying people around the world. It's much more efficient and it's uh, much more, you can be more reactive to the client's forever-changing program and obviously once it comes hopefully to the UK sector for uh, installation and commissioning if we happen to be representing the client for marine warranty we are we're alongside for loadouts we are on board for cable lays or pipe lays we're active quite in quite a lot of decommissioning around about the UK at the moment again um we'll be involved in the 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 prep for removal for top size on a jacket We'll oversee the the heavy lift vessel, and then we will probably oversee the removal of the the top sides or the jacket from the heavy lift onto a key side, whether that's in the UK or Norway or, or further afield. Or sometimes even we're involved in the voyages taking large pieces of kit to be scrapped further afield, as as these things tend to be done. Okay, okay. Is there anything that you still want to achieve in your current career? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I've, I've, I'm, I'm quite proud of what I have achieved. I, I said I got in the oil and gas industry and luck. I credit a lot of career moves to luck. Luck in getting that opportunity. Obviously, I've made that opportunity work for me. I've also made a few questionable career career decisions over the years. And in hindsight, I think, why did I do that? But you, you take a positive from everything and you learn from it and hopefully a bit more uh, prepared the next time. One of my biggest achievements, which I was really proud of, was becoming chair of this section of SPE in Aberdeen. I'd been a member for a long time and not really got involved, and it was something something clicked inside that all of a sudden I'm not one of the younger guys anymore, I'm one of the older people, so I need to start giving something back, as they say. Mm. So to be elected chair of the section was, was a big honour. We had around 2,000 members at that time. Hard work, but rewarding. It's a voluntary basis, so we fit it in around about the day job. I was, I was, I was obviously doing a lot of it during lockdown, which was even more challenging because we're trying to maintain our level to our members remotely and digitally. Fortunately, all that's come back. What would I still like to achieve, though? I'm going to sound unambitious, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But I've still got, I've still got a enthusiasm and a passion to forever learn more. The fact I'm moving into newer and newer industries, I'm learning more and more about these other industries, how they work, how they interface with what's here at the moment. The energy transition is obviously a huge discussion point. I feel a little conflicted sometimes because I've got a foot in both camps. My background is oil and gas, but I can see the benefits of renewable energy. And I think that they will live side by side for a long time. It's a transition. It's not a switchover. So I hope to be contribute something part of that. I Hopefully my oil and gas background can, I'll use the word again, help translate across to the renewable side of things. And it's something I'm, I'm really passionate about. So. Do you think that, that a lot of companies are are ready to move into the renewable sector? It depends. Depends where they are in the. Some companies, my own, my own, for instance, marine warranty. We've been doing marine warranty for renewables for twenty years. Obviously, we didn't do much twenty years ago because there wasn't that much. But we do as much 
out of our Aberdeen office, we do as much renewables as we do oil and gas, have done for five or six years. But our service provision, whether you're laying a cable to take electricity or whether you're learning an umbilical to take control signals to operate a remote subsea tree, it's the same. It doesn't make any difference. I can see that obviously companies who are heavily involved in on the drilling side of things or subsurface, that's a little bit more difficult to translate, but there are other areas of industry, geothermal, CCUS, things like that spring to mind where you've got reservoir element and wells and things like that. That's directly translatable. Through SPE, I do a lot of talk. I speak with a lot of students and recent graduates, you know, petroleum engineers, things like that. And they're going, what's happening? I've read the press. I'm, I've just spent five years doing oil and gas. What's happening? And it's a case of, well, we, we need oil and gas for a long time. We probably need to stop burning it quite as much as we do. But somebody said that to me 30 years ago. But we still need it as a feedstock for a lot of other industries. We'll still need it for fuel for quite some time. But speaking to some of these, these graduates, so you, you've got an entire career here. Even if we switch the taps off tomorrow in the North Sea, there's an entire career of plugging in abandonment, making the reservoir safe, making the well safe, removing all the infrastructure. There's a huge, huge amount of um, of industry still, and I, I find the I find the the uh, the press doesn't help sometimes with the public perception. I, I wish we could all be honest with what we're talking about. There's lots of stories on both sides, which is quite frustrating, especially when you've got a, a reasonable insight on both sides of the argument. And you know, it's a transition, it's in the middle. Uh, yeah, it's it's a, it, we, we could debate this all night. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. It is. We could debate it all night. Do you, did you always want to be an engineer? Is that no. was your goal? No, I did want to be an engineer of sorts. As I say, my father was a, was an engineer. I did my apprenticeship the same place as he did 20, 30 years earlier. And he had a good career. He went into more instructing and teaching. And as I say, he ended up being a lecturer at a technical college. And I quite fancied that. Initially, I really, really, really wanted to do quality management. I was involved early on in bringing quality management system into a factory, which by today's standards, yeah, everyone has a quality management system. In the early 90s, that was quite unusual, or not unusual, but it was becoming popular. And I really liked the quality management side of things. Here's what we do, and we're writing down what we do and cross-referencing and making sure we're compliant. Uh, and that was really interesting. So I, I decided there and then, I'm going to quality management, that's what I want to do. And then I started doing design engineering and design work. And as I say, I used to design some, I designed a safety brake for a ride in Disneyland in mm -hmm. the mid-90s. And then I worked for a company that made wheelchairs, electric wheelchairs. So I used to do do the design work and do build and test and uh, take them out in the streets and try things out. It was all good stuff. <laughs> and then, as I say, I, I was was trying to get into oil and gas, not really knowing what oil and gas was, other than there was lots of employment and it was good and all these kind of things. And as I say, I, I moved from, from that to, to oil and gas and entered into this whole new world. Okay. Sounds amazing. So... What part of the engineering do you do you prefer then? What do you find most exciting about it? I just like I, I like all sorts of engineering and science. I like knowing how things work. That's always fascinated me. And I continue that to today. I don't do a technical job specifically, but I'm involved in technical things. I also I again initially through SPE, but I do a lot of volunteering where I can. One of this I'm an older person now, I need to be sharing the knowledge, sharing the joy. So I'm a STEM ambassador and I do quite a lot of work with schools local to the Northeast 
and uh, some online stuff. And it's just if, if I can spark an interest in a young person that science, technology, engineering and maths is quite interesting. It's something that's a tough sell the maths piece, but science, technology and engineering, you know, it's fascinating. How do things work? You know, speaking to the, speaking to the young students, it's, you plug your phone in the wall, but where does, where does it come from? And then that rolls into the oil and gas and the energy mix and all this kind of thing. So I, I always just fascinated by it from engineers of old who built things on their kitchen table to, you know, Look out across the bay in Aberdeen. We've got everything from huge, big supply ves- vessels and wind farms and everything. You know, it's it's engineers and scientists who made these things work. Mm. To me, that's just fascinating. Yeah, it would be actually. I think it would be quite fascinating. So, have you had any career disasters? Many, <laughs> many career disasters. A few fairly major disasters working in. In oil and gas, two instances. There was an instance where we inadvertently supplied supplied an incorrect piece of equipment. So the long story was we shut down a drilling rig because it was an insufficient piece of equipment there. That was character building, shall I say, because I was the interface with the client. I was on the blunt end. This was quite a number of years ago where people tended to shout at you. <laughs> that was the way things happened. So that was a, a that was a pretty frantic forty eight hours till we got that that issue fixed. And there was a subsequent there was a subsequent investigation as to why this happened. And so we we got through that. As I say, it was quite character building. Taking the positive from that, a number of years later, a similar event happened, and it was actually on a project I was just looking after because somebody was on vacation, and it was quite a major project with a major operator. And it was a quite an expensive drill ship, which was an issue. Very similar issue again. It was a, a decision made seven months earlier on a piece of kit, managed to escape through. But at that time, I was much better equipped and I knew how to deal with it. And uh, another one, my mentor I mentioned, Scott Alley, one of his phrases was "bad news doesn't wait." And I'd had a call from the I'd had a call from the the offshore tech at four in the morning or something, and he says, "This is all going wrong." Right? Okay. Head the office. I was in the the client's office at seven a.m. Before they could say what's going on, I was like, "We've done this, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, and this is happening, and we're going to do this, and that's going to happen." And it was very much on. Everyone makes mistakes. Mistakes happen. Accidents happen. How do you recover from it? How do you put mitigation in place? And this this bad news doesn't wait. You better just to blurt out the bad news. It's horrible for ten minutes, and then we we'll clear the air, and it's let's fix it. And uh, so the second time that happened, it was. It wasn't my fault and it couldn't be pinned on me. That's from, from a personal point of view, but I was much better equipped to deal with it. But you know, there's been other things over the years, maybe not disasters, but you know, there's been challenging moments and all these things, these negatives, you, you build up a bit of resilience and uh, bad things don't last forever. They just, you get through it. At the end of the day, we're all trying to achieve something, hopefully the same goal. Certainly with, with oil and gas operations and development, we're, we're, we're trying to reach the end of the project. So. Yes, a mistake has happened. Somebody has done an error. We'll fix that later. How do we, how do we resolve the problem that's in front of us right now? I think that's the important bit. I think so. I, I think it's quite a it's quite a major uh, issue to to have uh, shut down a, a platform because something is not up to up to specification. Though. Yeah, yeah, and and as always with these things, it was the simplest of thing that that didn't didn't fit or didn't match or wasn't right. You know, it wasn't something that was really, really minutiae and intricate. It was something really, really obvious when you took the you took the time of standing back and looking at the process of events and it was 
well, that decision there was made nine months ago, and for whatever reason, it slipped through. So I was also involved in the, the the subsequent investigation, and that we found the error of our ways and put in some mitigating mitigating pieces, so it wouldn't happen again. But again, very very maybe not a career disaster, but very much you add that to your your arsenal how to deal with adverse occurrences. So the next time it happens, well, it wasn't as bad as that, was it? No. As long as you learn from things. I was it's, just wondering I was just wondering what kind of mitigations did you put in place so it didn't happen again? It was it was really simple. It was improving QC and QA and it was actually more a paperwork thing. The the manufacturing actually supplied exactly what they were asked to supply, the manufacturing department. The problem occurred on paperwork. And it was literally as simple as it was there was a dash of two instead of a dash of three or something. I don't recall now, it's a long time ago. It was something as trivial as that that wasn't picked up on a paperwork. So we introduced some checks and balances on paperwork. It, 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 it's crazy to look at it, how it got through and how it happened. But it was just, you know, somebody to produce something, somebody glanced at it, went, yeah, that's fine. It could be just as simple as that. <laughs> One yeah. of these, you know, I won't repeat the language my boss used when it happened. But, you know, it was a reference to you know a very high dollar mistake there. It is, and sometimes sometimes these these type of problems can just be that it was some a simple mistake that no one that no one yeah. really picked up on. Because I've had yeah. I've had a few or seen a few mistakes like that over the years that's uh, been that's been maybe simple, but then it's turned into a huge deal. Yes, just snowballs. Yeah, they it just does. snowballs. Yeah, it does. Again, that, that, that was another time. In the back of my mind, just thought, this is not my fault. This is not my fault. But I still, I'm in the middle of it. We need to get it fixed. We need to, uh, we need to get the equipment running again. So, again, we did various things. Manufactured a, a workaround. We couldn't remanufacture the original piece of adapters and things that would work. Mm. I don't want to do that again. No, it wasn't. <laughs> that was quite a long time ago. Yeah, but it can it can be stressful when it when it all goes wrong for for whatever reason, though. The 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 first one, I was a lot younger then, and I think that was the first time I'd ever really suffered from stress, like sitting, shaking, just not really knowing what to do. Yeah, that, that was that was bad. I never want to do that again. And I've always. I always kind of maintain since then. I don't really do stress, but I still do stress. I just don't show it, which is worse. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe as long as, as long as you get things fixed as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. As I say, the crux of it is mess ups happen. How how do we recover? Yeah, I think so too. And how you yeah. learn from your mistakes as well. And learn, yes, and learn so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Absolutely. So, in your opinion, if you were going to hire a graduate, what kind of skills and experience would you look for? It's always interesting. As I say, I speak to a lot of students, both in secondary school and and graduates and and, uh, university students. And I always say, you're coming out of a graduation group of however many people it is, let's say 20. You've all got a master's in this. You've all got that. You've all got that. You've all done three years internship. You've all got this. Right, so that's the that's the baseline. What else have you got? To me, personality. Be yourself. Show some personality. Stick out. Make me remember you. I'm a big fan of communication. Being able to communicate, so you can be the you can be the the best engineer, the best 
scientist, whatever, but unless you can communicate these ideas and your thoughts to other people, that to me is the real the real skill. Now, whether that's written down or spoken, whatever. But I always say to these folks when you were writing your CV is just demonstrate something that's different, demonstrate something you've done. The chances are it'll be something It's nothing to do with your academia, it's nothing to do with your work experience. It'll be something you've done outside, whether it's voluntary or something you've done uh, extracurricular during school or university. That'll be the thing that will show some advantages that you've shown either leadership or good communication skills or, you know, there's a variety of things that I personally look for in in graduates and young folk and, and employees in general. They've got the engineering background, they've got the relevant degree or whatever. So we're competent, we know we're confident we know we can do that. Um a lot of the instances we need to know if a graduate's going to fit in to the the company, fit in with the way we do or not necessarily the way we do things, because I hate that phrase, the way we do it. Fit in with the company that we have and hopefully enhance it and, and build on it. That's kind of what I look for. That answer your question, I think it's what I think so. Do you think a, a lot of the young graduates are more confident? Because when you're younger, you're, you can be more introvert, I would say, sometimes. It's it's funny because folk of that age are different than I was at that age, but maybe I'm just looking at it through the long end of the telescope. Um, yeah, they can be a little bit introverted. And, you know, there's the stereotypes of millennials and Gen Zs and whatever that they would sit and, watch, sit and look at a ringing phone rather than answer it. And yes, there is there is that difference, but we need to understand, adapt, and play to that. And it's and to me, that's all part of we're all thankfully doing a big push on diversity, and it's diversity of everything. So you've got these people who are culturally different because they communicate in different ways, coupled to the fact that a lot of them lost some of their teenage years with with lockdown, mm. early twenties. The world was quite messed up for a number of years. If that's the way they want to communicate, we need to to build and adapt our systems to be able to to utilise these people in these manners. And I think that has, from our own part, I think that has contributed to some of our flexibility in working. Now, it varies from office to office. We've got nine offices in the UK, something like that. And it varies from office to office. Folk in our London office, they're quite keen to be in the office because it's interaction and it's people because we're locked in a locked in a small bedsit or a flat for three years. Some of the others choose to work work away. But I think we we need to recognise and adapt because rather than trying to force a young person or a graduate into what we think is normal or what we think is the way to do it, I think we need to embrace new thinking. And it's really fascinating. I do quite a lot of mock interviews with secondary school students at some of the local academies to Aberdeen. And I'm always amazed at the the thoughts of 16, 17, 18 year olds. They've just got a different outlook completely. And I I try to think I'm pretty open-minded and free thinking and I try to be open to new ideas, but you just speak to some of these people and it's like, wow, I wouldn't have even thought about it that way because they're just coming from a different point of view. And I think that's something to be embraced and you, you get benefit from that. You're bringing new ideas, new thoughts, new ways of doing things. I quite agree as well, actually. I do. But then there's sometimes it feels like there's not that much young graduates wanting to come into the energy sector, though. That is that is a problem. I mentioned earlier that the, the press doesn't help with that sometimes. Oil's bad, all this kind of stuff. 
I wish we could be honest with with the the energy mix and how energy works and where it comes from. I just wish we could do that. And even when there's uh, large contingents protesting against oil and gas development, which is fine, I completely understand and to an extent agree with what they're trying to achieve. But there is a huge number of people employed in oil and gas. Fine. We need to do things cleaner. We need to do things cleverer. And then somebody will throw energy security into the mix and you go, well, yes, well, we've got to develop this because it's energy security. And say, well, yeah, but that oil doesn't make it into energy because it's no use for making fuel. It makes something else and we have to send it to another country to produce it. So it's a failed argument to, in my mind. Yes, energy security is an issue, but we need to be honest about what things are. You know, there's a few big developments coming up, which they may or may not go ahead. Who knows? There are pros and cons of, of of both. And as I say, I feel a little bit conflicted. I've got a foot in both camps. I, I fully see and appreciate both sides. I can also see that in the, in the extremes, as always, the extremes have got no tolerance for the other. And there's, speaking to, to, to both sides of the coin, they just can't see an advantage or a, even an acceptance of the other. But that's always the same with extremes. It's a, it's a centrist that will, that, will, that will get things working. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 I was I was on a podcast a couple of years ago. I got interviewed by a sixteen year old student about energy and energy transition, and because I'm involved in lots of different stuff. And then it turned quite out of the serial because I worked in the oil and gas industry, and it was how can you sleep at night? And and it went wow. And you know, just just chatting and says you know all the oil that comes out of the ground, we don't burn it all. You know, we, we make a lot of things from it. It's required, it's necessary to make virtually everything that I'm looking at here. It's plastic, it's whatever. But we also need affordable energy. So we need to do things like this. And it's not always 100% environmentally friendly. But we need to do the best we can. And we are endeavouring to decarbonise oil and gas production. We are endeavouring to have net zero developments and lots of other stuff. But mm. we can't just do it overnight and we can't just switch from one to the other overnight it does take time but we need to be forever looking in the right direction i think and that doesn't sit well with some folks in oil and gas no, no. it doesn't no and as i say i feel conflicted i'm a member of spe and, and that's what it's all about and um, we've seriously changed our track in aberdeen because we are servicing our members and our members are saying what's my future what do i oil and gas what's happening with it where, where do i go so we've got to accommodate that um, but depending where you are geographically in the world, there are different outlooks. So, you think so? Yes, it's 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 fascinating because the the approach to oil and gas in the northwest corner of Europe, where we are, is is one thing. The approach, thoughts, and views in the Gulf of Mexico is significantly different, or the Middle East, or you know, I don't have an answer. Have I had an answer? I'd be writing books. <laughs> I think the transition will take time, actually. I don't think it's going to happen overnight like a lot of people think. I, I Rightly or wrongly, I always maintain that energy transition is not new. We transitioned onto oil and gas 100 years ago. We yeah, transitioned right. away from coal. Well, we're still trying to transition away from coal, but arguably in the UK, we've kind of transitioned away from coal. We transitioned into nuclear energy in the 50s and 60s. We're kind of, well, are we moving? No, we're building a new one, Hinkley. So it's forever evolving. You know, 
speaking to folk, you know, um, hydrogen is fascinating. There's lots of possibilities with hydrogen. And everyone's hydrogen, hydrogen, hydrogen. I went, yeah, but we flew airships with hydrogen 100 years ago. Um, every city had town gas, which is largely hydrogen. It was made from burning coal, but it's still hydrogen. So it's not new. It's just, it's cleaner, it's greener this way, if we make it the right way. So it's just, it's it's forever evolving and it's a mix. One, If you put all your eggs in one basket, it doesn't work. You know, if we were solely reliant on, we all know we can't be solely reliant on wind because it's not developed, it's not uh, predictable. We can't be solely reliant on oil and gas because uh, a skirmish or a conflict in certain parts of the world could practically stop the, practically did stop the flow in some instances to some countries. So the the more diverse mix you have, the more security you've got. That's that's the way I look at it. Okay, I think so too. And, uh, northeast of Scotland at this time of year, if we could generate electricity from the cold, we'd be sorted. <laughs> yeah, but then we have transitioned. I don't. I sometimes. I mean, it is going to take a lot new technology to be developed, and it is being developed now. And we still have, we have a lot of skilled skilled people to 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 work in that environment. Mm-hmm. But it's still going to take time. It's, oh yeah. And it's not really new because we have, as you were saying before, we have transitioned several times in the UK quite mm. successfully as well. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I remember talking to, it was uh, down at the Scottish Oil Club, which they don't even call themselves Scottish Oil Club anymore. That's a whole other debate for another day. It was an economist from Equinor, and, and his worldview of it was, how are we going to find enough gas to get people away from coal? And he was trying to transition the, the developing world onto natural gas instead of using coal for heat and, heat and cooking. And that was his take on it. He says, if we can convert a billion people from coal to natural gas, the, the environmental impact, positive environmental impact, would outweigh anything else we could do in the Western world. And it's just how big a picture, how big a picture do you want to look at it? Mm. And you get the, you know, does someone buying an electric car, does it make a huge difference? Scale things, no, but it's the accumulative marginal gains. You know, there's merits in that. But And he was kind of just looking at, well, you know, take a continent. Let's look at this on a continental basis. And the end goal is it's a mix. It's going to take time. You know, we, do, we need to do what we can do, but there's, there's no uh, there's no magic wand that makes it go away. It's not. Because I think a lot of people are quite, I mean, a lot of people are quite scared that, the, that they're going to just stop making uh, petrol cars overnight. Which I don't think it's going to be. It's not going to be viable to do that, though. Um, it's not viable. It's not viable because there isn't a suitable alternative. But the caveat, though, is there's ar- there's an argument again. Not necessarily I agree with. There's an argument we've become too comfortable with. We've all got a car, and we all go wherever we want, whenever we want. We all fly on holiday four times a year. You know, there's, there are there are quarters that will argue that we shouldn't be doing that. Whether that's right, wrong, or different, but yeah, we couldn't stop internal combustion cars tomorrow because we haven't got a charging structure. We haven't got, you know, if I can't remember what the statistic is, but it was something like if ten percent of motorists decided tomorrow to buy an electric car, they wouldn't be able to buy one for a year because there's not enough of them because supply chains and supply lags and things like that. Then, if you got an electric car, you wouldn't be able to charge it because there's not enough electricity. Then it gets back to there's not enough electricity because we haven't got enough gas or we haven't got enough wind. Or, it's a, it's a vicious circle. I think so too, actually. So what is your zone of genius? What are you most excellent at? Wow, zone of genius. I like to think I'm a really good communicator. Mm. I'm quite chatty. I like chatting about things. I 
these days I really enjoy, as I say, trying to encourage younger folk, trying to share what I've learned, trying to make them make the best of their career. As I say, I, I quite like quite like volunteering with SPE, Boyer Field, STEM Ambassador, like working with schools, just anything to make make young people think about how the world works. And if they think about how the world works, they might be intrigued to think about how they could contribute and make a difference. But is that my sphere of expertise? I'm not sure. I think I'm reasonable at it. I've always maintained I don't use the word expert in anything. I wouldn't consider myself to be an expert in anything because I've never specialised in one thing. Um, some of my career changes, as I say, I worked for Drill Cup a long time ago. I work for ABL Group today. I've worked for all various sorts of service companies, manufacturers. When I change jobs, which the boom and bust nature of oil and gas hasn't always been my choice to change jobs. My, one of my rules is I will not will go from one job, one one company to a competitor because it's just it's the same challenge, the same stuff with a different calendar on the wall. So a lot of my a lot of my colleagues and peers when I when I originally started with ABL, which wasn't called ABL at that time, they said, "What do you know about marine systems and marine warranty?" And think I said, "I don't know anything about that, nothing at all. I'm going to learn, but I know how to talk to clients. I know how to understand what people need." And I know how to translate that into business opportunities, engineering opportunities, and things like that. So that's that's where I see my strength. And that's what I like doing. I was gonna ask you off the back of that then. Do you really think it's important to be have specific industry knowledge in the job that you're going in a new job that you're going into? Can you can you learn on the job if you bring other skills with you? I think so. I, I firmly believe that. If I knew, if I knew everything, well, not everything, you know, clearly, if I was an expert in a certain field, I could do the entire job myself. I wouldn't need the engineering department or the dedicated engineers to do it. I would just do it myself. So I go there to strike up a conversation with the client, understand what they're what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve, and if and when the opportunity is right, say, I'd like to meet one of my colleagues. I think you would really have a good conversation because you've got this problem. We do these kind of things, but perhaps we could talk about something we've done in the past. And then you get those two together. And but the sort of people I'm talking to, generally talking to more to decision makers, department managers, who themselves are a bit further away from the the coal front, and they they have budgets to look after. They've got decisions to make. They've got their drivers and their needs and their wants. And if I can talk that language and understand. I'm not just trying to sell a widget or a service. I'm trying to understand what your project budget is. I'm trying to understand what's critical. Is it cost? Is it time? And you try to understand that and empathize with the person you're talking to. And if you, you speak the same language, I don't need to be an expert at uh, well stimulation or intervention or whatever. I can bring the expert in once we've had that initial conversation. That's kind of how I look at it. I have my slightly... Uh, flippant way of saying the best engineer doesn't make the best manager, but they always get promoted. You can arguably manage a department not knowing anything about it as long as you can manage people and you manage time and you manage budgets. You don't really need to know what's happening. That's a bit ideal, I know. <laughs> and it's it's a strange thing, certainly in Aberdeen, because the majority 
creative companies are, are, are built and created by engineers. The majority of them are. I always maintain the downside is if you are a former expert engineer and you're now the engineering manager or you're the CEO or whatever, you get involved in the detail. Whereas you need to be you need to be looking at the big picture and running the company or running the department, not getting involved in what the flow rate is in this piece or whatever. That's my that's my theory. That's my theory. But then sometimes, sometimes it's hard to to be hands off though. It's incredibly incredibly difficult. I mean, even in my little way, when I moved from design engineering to to doing sales, I had to actively train myself to. Uh, I was just obsessed with. Precision and everything had to be exactly right, and I had to actively back myself off from detail. I had to not interest in detail; it's just noise, which was very, very, very alien to start with. Somebody else can worry about the detail. The the people that are doing the design work or the all the calculations and all the um, finite analysis they can worry about the detail. I don't need to worry about the detail. I need to worry about the bigger picture thing, and I, it took me a long time to disengage myself like that. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> every person is different. I think so too. I think so too. So, what keeps you motivated when times get tough? Oh, that's an incredibly good question. What keeps me motivated? What keeps me motivated? I like making a difference. Hopefully, I like I try to encourage people that yeah, it's tough, but we'll get through it. And maybe we could do things differently, and maybe there's a different way out. Maybe we could, you know, talking to some. I was talking to a young engineer in Germany not so long ago and he was saying you know his line of work was becoming a bit tough because some regulation had changed as well have you still got your relationship with your clients yeah but they don't do anything well go and have a chat with them see what they're doing see if we could develop some other way to provide us assistance you know our primary service might be drying up but perhaps there's something else we could do go and have a chat with them go and find out what his drivers are go and find out what his problems are or his budgets and maybe there's something else so it's yeah, times are tough, but if you sit and wait for the type, tough times to go away, you might sit for a while. Uh, and I, I think I've got that attitude because the boom and bust of oil and gas, looking back with however many years hindsight, I think this is crazy that we're doing this, but we've all been through it. We've all we've all had to redo it again. And it's just, it's just it's not just being glibly positive or having positive, men- well, positive mental attitude is, is critical, but it's Let's do some practical to try and work our way out rather than just waiting for something to happen or waiting for the, the conditions to change. Okay. That's excellent advice, actually. So I'm going to ask you one final question, maybe. Certainly. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? Probably not. I might change some small details. I don't even, I don't even make any major, major difference because I don't know what would have happened. It's the what ifs, isn't it? I've done this. I could have gone there and could have gone. Yeah, you know. No, I don't think I've changed anything in the whole. I've had some fantastic jobs. I've had some horrific jobs. I've had some fantastic mentors and managers. I've had some horrific mentors and managers. But from each one of them, I've picked up something which I hopefully build into my style. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I like what you do, but the negatives as well. It's like I'm certainly never going to do that to treat people like that or act in that type of way. So I think they've all built into a positive. As I say, I've worked in lots of different parts of the, of, of the oil and gas and now energy businesses. Never really done the same thing twice. You know, I haven't gone from supplier A to supplier B to do the same thing because I just, I just don't see the point in that. 
So I've picked up lots of bits across the industry. And yeah, no, I don't think I would change anything. Yeah, maybe one job I might have not, that might have not have taken, but that was it was short lived. Okay. So maybe one final question. So if you got any advice to any any new graduates wanting to come into the energy sector? Yes. There's a fantastic career they're waiting for you. It might not present itself on a plate. You might have to go looking for it, but there's a fantastic career there if you can apply yourself and if you can apply your skills and your intelligence to these problems. We've got problems with oil and gas from a decommissioning standpoint. We've got all these things to decommission. We need to be able to do it better, cheaper, cleaner, easier, whatever. We've got new developments which we need to put in in a net zero fashion. We've got lots of other things. We've got competing industries. We need clever, well-motivated, smart people to devise ways of doing these things. And people fresh out, of, fresh out of university, I often refer to my personal baggage I carry around because I've been in the industry for a long time and you pick up things and you try to be open-minded, but you've, you've, got, you've got your baggage. <laughs> and these people are coming in with a blank sheet and I just say, hey, anything's possible. I think these days, more than ever, if you've got an idea that could work, and whether it's a, a game-changing idea or marginal gains again, people will listen to you because there are such problems to be solved and there are so many achievements to be made by just, if I can shave 5% off this, yes, that's fantastic. We're going to be doing it 3,000 times in the next five years. That makes a big difference. And really looking at things like decommissioning, you know, if you can just... There are so many there are so many wells to decommission in the North Sea. I can't remember the number. It's 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 crazy. If you could just shave a fraction off of each one or each operation by a new process or a deployment of a new technology or whatever, the the cumulative effect is is enormous. And of course, if you do that, you think, oh, it's good. I wonder if I could, I could come up with something else that just nibble a little bit more away. But I think it's a, a, a fascinating and. Uh, worthwhile career to be had. It's not always easy. It's not always plain sailing. There are frustrations. There are factors out with your control. The oil price. It's the, you know the industry lives by the oil price, and it, we just got to live with that. That's what it is. But yeah, I would still recommend to this day. Yep, fantastic career, oil and gas. Even though it's on its way out, even though we're going to stop using it, it's still a fantastic career. We're not going to be using it over in tomorrow, though. <laughs> no. Okay, that's all the questions I have today. No problem. I would like to thank Graham for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.